Hello my friends, welcome back to Gardo Goes Geek. On today's episode, we're going to be looking at the seminal work, The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, a landmark piece of science fiction featuring perhaps the first alien invasion story as Martians launch their fighting machines against the people of Earth, and how that story has been adapted over the years in multiple different media um, to discuss the merits of different adaptations. Hope you'll join me, it's going to be a good one. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells is one of the most famous science fiction novels of all time. It's been continually in print um, since 1897 when it was originally serialised in Pearson's magazine. Um, It was published as a complete novel a year later. It spawned feature films, video games, radio dramas, an album, um, comic book adaptations, television serials, The story for it has been adapted into other work. For example, there is a multi-part episode of the Justice League cartoon series that features the storyline from the War of the Worlds, because the story itself is actually now in the public domain, and I think has been for a while. Um, The story also appears in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the comics by Alan Moore. Yeah, like I said, it is one of the most famous and most influential science fiction stories of all time. I believe it may even be the first um, alien invasion storyline ever done in science fiction. Um, And it is one of the stories that H.G. Wells is best remembered for. Herbert George Wells, who lived from September uh, 1866 to August 1946, um, was one of the most prolific English writers. Uh, He wrote dozens of novels, short stories, social commentary. He even wrote two books on wargaming. You know, he, he wrote a lot in a lot of, you know, in a wide variety of, um, subjects. But he's generally most well-known nowadays for his science fiction work. He's quite often referred to as the father of science fiction, or sometimes even the Shakespeare of science fiction. As well as War of the Worlds, his other most popular works in the genre include The Invisible Man, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and most especially The Time Machine. The science fiction works he created imagined time travel, alien invasion, invisibility, biological engineering, um, aircraft, tanks, space travel, nuclear weapons, even satellite television and something that could resemble the World Wide Web. You know, decades in most cases before these things ever originated. I have been aware of H.G. Wells's work for a long time. I grew up in Bromley, Kent, in the southern southeast of England, 
Um, Bromley was the town where H.G. Wells was born. And there used to be a mural there featuring art inspired by his works, um, including the Time Machine and a Martian fighting machine. So despite only really reading The War of the Worlds for the first time these past two weeks, this past fortnight, I have been aware of the the Martian tripod for a long, long time. <laughs> so what is The War of the Worlds? The novel The War of the Worlds is a story um, centering on an unnamed protagonist, a writer of philosophy, who is caught up in an invasion of Surrey and London by Martians who have arrived from the planet Mars in artificial cylinders, one of which crashes every 24 hours and from which come Martian fighting machines described in the book as giant three-legged machines armed with a devastating heat ray that set fire sets fire to its victims a chemical black smoke weapon um which leaves a, a black dust and kills anything it comes into contact with and during the later stages of their invasion they also unleash a red weed the Martian vegetation that, in the story, gives Mars its signature red colour. Obviously, nowadays we understand more of the the science regarding other planets and realise that it's not possible for life as we know it to exist on either Mars or Venus or any of the other planets in our solar system. But this novel was written at a, um, a more innocent scientific time where such things were widely theorised. Um, so the idea of Mars in this novel is a planet that supports life, but is dying, is losing its ability to support life. And so the Martians come to Earth. It starts with uh, flashes being seen on the surface of Mars and the narrator with a astronomer who is one of the few characters named in the book, named Ogilvy, a good friend of his, um, observes these green flashes uh, emanating from the surface of Mars. And they don't think much of them until months later when the cylinders start to land. One of them lands uh, on Horsall Common, very close to the narrator's own home near Woking in Surrey in England. The cylinder opens and a Martian appears. The Martians are described as large, 
octopus-like creatures almost. Um, the size of a bear with luminous eyes, greyish-brown skin, um, and tentacles. Um, they basically get described later in the novel as almost brains with mouths and hands, and that's it. The Martians um, seem to have difficulty coping with the increased atmosphere and gravity of Earth and retreat into their cylinder. They are then approached by Ogilvy and a small human deputation uh, with a white flag for surrender, but those humans are then incinerated, as are many, many others in the surrounding area, by the heat ray to scare the humans off. The narrator manages to escape, and we then hear hammering from the pit that the Martian cylinder is in. The Martians are, despite the, the clear threat that their heat ray poses, are very much underestimated by the people, despite the casualties that they've caused. You know, news of the Martians reaches London, where the narrator's brother lives, and it causes very little reaction. That night, however, the heat ray attacks the town, uh, Maybury Hill, um, where the the narrator lives. He flees his house with his wife and servant and drives them to the nearby safety of Leatherhead, uh, where his cousin lives, um, using a, a cart that he rents from um, a local barman. He then returns to Woking in the cart to return it, as promised, uh, leaving his wife behind, and is caught in a thunderstorm wherein which he sees, for the first time, the three-legged Martian fighting machines, the tripods. They have attacked and destroyed most of Woking, as well as army units that were positioned around the cylinder um, as a result of the, the heat ray attack the previous day. He takes shelter in his house, but is soon disturbed by a fleeing artilleryman uh, moving through his garden. The artilleryman tells him of his own experiences um, and how the, the fighting machines attacked and wiped them out and how he just about managed to survive. Uh, a second cylinder by this point has landed between Woking and Weather Leatherhead, meaning that the narrator is now cut off from his wife as Martians lie in that direction. The two of them, the narrator and the artilleryman, team up and try to escape, but get caught uh, in a Martian afternoon attack the next day on Shepparton while trying to make the Weybridge Ferry across the Thames. Some artillery do manage to bring down one of the Martian fighting machines, um, but the narrator and is separated from the artilleryman he is with and scalded by boiling water caused by the heat ray, um, and he ends up downstream. Uh, floating down on a boat where he is found by a curate. Um, a curate is 
uh, a parish priest, I think it's, a, it's an older fashioned term, uh, generally the person who cares for the parish. The narrative switches uh, to the narrator's younger brother and details his flight from London as Martians renew their offensive and break through the siege guns and field artillery um, north of London and launch an attack with their black smoke. He, His brother manages to flee to the Essex coast after a sudden evacuation order comes down in the early hours of the morning and encounters several other refugees, including one of the only other named characters, Mrs. Elphinstone, and her younger sister-in-law, who are hoping to meet uh, Mr. Elphinstone, um, but have been unable to reunite with him. The three of them fall in and continue on together. They end up with a mass panicked huddle of uh, humanity fleeing London. Um, you know, millions of people um, with carts and horses carrying what little possessions they have um people are trampled along the road it's a, a very very panicked journey and they manage to make their way down to the coast uh, in tillingham where they buy passage to europe on a small paddle steamer part of a large number of ships that have arrived to evacuate refugees. As they board the ship and the ship makes way, the Martian fighting machines arrive, and it is only through the sacrifice of a Navy Royal Navy torpedo ram known, named the HMS Thunderchild that the fighting machines are stopped and the ships carrying evacuees are able to leave England. Um, the Thunderchild is destroyed in the effort, but it destroys two, possibly three, fighting machines doing so. And with that, the narrator's brother and his travelling companions all manage to leave. But um, shortly thereafter, all organised resistance in Britain collapses. And the Martians are able to roam the landscape relatively unhindered. And that ends book one of the story. Um, because the, sto the novel is split into two parts. The first part is The Coming of the Martians, and the second part is Earth Under the Martians. The second part I don't think is as good necessarily as the first part there's a lot of stuff that happens in the first part of the book and it tends to be some of the most memorable moments of the book um but earth under the martians is good as well the narrator and the curate start um walking um back towards london they plunder houses looking for food and they are then trapped under a house under a cylinder that lands um, while they're overnight near Kew Gardens. They see a Martian handling machine, as it's called, uh, seizing any person it finds and tossing them into a, a large carrier on its back. Um, 
and they realise that the Martians may have plans other than extermination um, for the human race. While they're trapped under this house in Sheen, sorry, not Q, while they're trapped under the house in Sheen, um, the narrator's relations with the curate begin to deteriorate. The curate is um, starting to lose his mind, um, seeing the, the Martians as, as devils and, uh, yeah, becoming very animated and panicking the narrator into thinking that they're going to be discovered, causing him to knock the curate unconscious um, to sort of cease his ranting. However, by that point, the curate has already been overheard and his body is taken away by one of the Martian handling machines. It's at this point, or just before as well, that the narrator sees um, the Martians feed from a human by nourishing themselves on the human's blood. And so the narrator soon expects that that's what will happen to the curate. He manages to hide from the tentacle, um, and eventually the Martians abandon the crater that the cylinder had made, and the narrator is able to escape from the... Uh, the collapsed house. He'd been in there 15 days at this point. But he manages to escape. He approaches London. He sees the red weed everywhere, especially growing um, in water. As he travels through Putney Heath, he once again encounters the artilleryman, who has a grandiose plan of rebuilding civilization by living underground. However, the narrator soon deduces that the uh, the artilleryman, while he has these big plans, doesn't necessarily have the ability to realise them, uh, or necessarily the drive to realise them. He feels that the artilleryman is uh, lazy and more interested in playing survival rather than actually trying to survive. Um, so the narrator leaves him again and heads to the centre of London and begins to go a bit mad from all the trauma he's experienced. He points out at some point in the novel that due to his circumstance, he's had more first-hand experiences of the Martians than anyone else. Purely by happenstance, the narrator keeps finding himself in situations and survives almost miraculously, uh, such as with the heat ray on Horsell Common, the attack on the, uh, the Weybridge Ferry, uh, all the way through to being buried under the house. The narrator tries to end his life by approaching a fighting machine. However, the fighting machine has gone stationary because the Martians have died as a result of earthly bacteria. Um, to, to quote the novel, slain after all man's devices had failed by the humblest things that God in his wisdom has put upon this earth. The narrator then suffers a, a brief... Uh, 
nervous breakdown. He gets nursed back to health by a, a kind family in London. Uh, he says that by the time, obviously, he found the Martians had died, other people had already discovered that, and people had started to return to the country. He's eventually able to head back to Woking uh, via train, and he discovers that somehow, despite the destruction of Leatherhead, his wife has miraculously survived. And he reflects in the epilogue on the significance of the Martian invasion and the sense of doubt and insecurity he has as a result, but does suggest that the world has come together in the aftermath um, to help uh, Great Britain rebuild and to, you know, defend against any future attacks. But he also says that he has seen similar green flashes to those original ones on both Mars and Venus in recent days. It's a very good book. It's a little dry in places. The The prose is um, not the most accessible to the modern reader, I don't think. Um, purely by way of the, the manner that language has evolved over the years. You know, it's... Um, there's a lot of quite colourful words, but it does paint a very descriptive picture as you read it. You are invested in it. There's, there's very rarely a, a boring moment or a lull in the story. Some parts are large descriptions of events, but... It is all presented as though it was a factual account of an actual invasion, an actual Martian invasion. And it's being presented after the incident, after the invasion. So you do obviously always feel that the, the narrator isn't ever in any true danger, knowing that he will survive just because of the way the author's voice in the story works, we know that he will survive. But it's still very good. We learn very little about the background of the characters. We are just sort of introduced to them and then told of the events that happened to them. But very few of them are named. Like I said, I think Ogilvy and Mrs. Elphinstone are the only two giving any actual names. And while it's certainly a bold choice... I do think it's somewhat to the novel's detriment as you end up with a sort of detachment from every character that isn't the narrator. The only reason we have a connection to the narrator at all, I think, is purely because we are privy to his thoughts, which we're not necessarily for the other characters, except with the maybe minor exception of his brother. Um, just due to the way those chapters are written. Um, you know, it's described as happening to the narrator's brother, 
but it's also written in not quite the first person in the same way that the rest of the novel is, but very descriptive, almost as if the narrator is actually there. Um, and I'll address later on how one of the adaptations sort of fixed that. The Martians, however, are terrifying in this. They come across phenomenally powerful, almost unstoppable, um, from the moment they unleash their fighting machines. They swiftly um, eliminate any any um, resistance against them. Um, we see them, you know, for example, with the Thunder Child, we see them go up against the, the Royal Navy and survive, <laughs> you know. Um, or, you know, exact as an equal atoll on their enemy. We see how just encountering them, the effect that has on, you know, a soldier like the artilleryman. So, yeah, that's a, and, and the, their weapons are described as something horrific. The black smoke, especially, um, has long descriptions of how it works, such as when it hits water, it um, turns into a scum that will then sink through the water and kill everything within it. Um, but leave the water itself completely safe to drink above that scum. Um, you know, it will sort of sit there in situ, heavier than the air, close to the ground, um, before it's eventually absorbed by the ground, and it will kill anything that breathes. You know, it's... it's you know, it's it's a chemical weapon, but it's described in this terrifying way. The swift way that the Martians are able to um, take London and deal with most of the uh, resistance against them is also terrifying. Um, it was very clearly designed to attack London because, well... H.G. Wells commented that the story came about due to a discussion he had with his brother um, talking about the the catastrophic effect of the British Empire on indigenous Tasmanian peoples in Australia and Tasmania and how they were the wiped out and he wondered what would happen if aliens were to do to the British what the British had done to the Tasmanians. Um, you know, it's very clearly a comment on colonialism. And obviously at the, the time of the book's original writing, I think it was arguable what the greatest superpower in the world was. But... Britain was definitely a strong contender, and obviously, you know, the British Empire was at the height of its power towards the end of the 19th century. Um, you know, the height of its reach and influence in the Victorian era. So, seeing London sacked and devastated 
by these Martian invaders, the you know the home counties of Great Britain, which were considered unassailable by any enemy force, that must have been very sudden and unexpected to to readers back then, especially feeling the tension of the the forthcoming world war. You know the the Great War of uh, nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen took place mainly in Europe, but I think there was a strong sense that it was coming, um, even as early as 1897. So, yeah, definitely a, an interesting one. I will say after the, um, the shock and awe of the original Martian assault, the way they are defeated does become slightly anticlimactic. Um, I'm not sure how that could have been resolved. And I do think the ending is perfect. It's one of those um, perfect twist endings, which isn't only... It only isn't a twist to us now, a hundred years later, because obviously it's been done so many times since. Um, but there is a, a very distinct poetic... Uh, echo um, throughout the narrative of how the Martians die. Like one of the early lines of the story is, uh, you know, one of the opening lines is, um, no one could have dreamed that we were being scrutinized as someone with a microscope studies creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. You know, echoing the the microbiological science that is what destroys the Martians in the end. You know, by comparing us to those microbes at the start of the story, only for those microbes to be the ones that defeat the Martians where mankind failed. I do think there's a... a nice poetry in that. But I also can see that you know, how much the Martian threat is built up, that that does come across anticlimactic. I don't know, maybe that's just me looking at it as a modern audience. And as I said, I'm not sure how you could remedy that. Obviously, War of the Worlds, um, as well as being this amazing work, went on to inspire multiple adaptations. As I said, films television, video games, um, music albums, stage shows, no matter what you can think of, War of the Worlds has done it. Um, some more accurately than others. Uh, for the rest of this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the most well-known of the, um, the War of the Worlds adaptations. And I'm going to start with the Steven Spielberg film from 2005. War of the Worlds um, was released in 2005, directed by Steven Spielberg, and stars uh, Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning, um, aged 10 years old at the time. 
with several other characters and supporting roles and a brief narration at the film's opening and closing by Morgan Freeman. The narrative of the original story is shifted to America, specifically New Jersey, where Tom Cruise's character Ray Ferrier uh, works as a dock worker and has his children for the weekend. They're dropped off by his uh, pregnant ex-wife uh, and her new partner at his house while she's on a, her way to Boston to visit her parents. Later on that day, a strange storm occurs. It's revealed that these storms are happening all around the world, um, where lightning strikes multiple times into the middle of the road nearby, and also causes an EMP that fries all electronic devices. Um, so everything from wristwatches to phones no longer work. Ray goes to investigate the scene of the, the lightning strikes and a tripod war machine emerges from the ground and uses energy weapons to destroy the local area and disintegrate people into a grey ash. Ray collects his children, uh, steals a van from a local mechanic after he advised him on how to fix it earlier and takes his kids to uh, his ex-wife's now empty home in New Jersey to hide. They take shelter in the basement there, um, but soon after a plane crashes on the house. The next morning they learn from uh, a wandering news team who are investigating the plane wreckage that Multiple tripods have attacked major cities all around the world and that the tripods have force shields that protect them from most of humanity's defences. And video footage so shows that the lightning storm is what allowed the aliens to enter their machines. So the machines have been presumed to be underground for thousands of years at the very least but the aliens have only recently arrived to activate them Ray decides to drive the kids to Boston to be with their mother um, but their vehicle gets stolen by a desperate mob they get to the Hudson River Ferry only to get surrounded by tripods which either massacre or abduct many of the refugees. Ray and his family manage to escape. They witness some Marines engaging a battle with the tripods. And his teenage son, Robbie, um, who has grown angry at the, the things the tripods have been doing, leaves Ray to run and join the fight. Uh, Ray takes his daughter, Rachel, and manages to hide in a nearby basement with a survivalist uh, played by Tim Robbins who is named Harlan Ogilvy. They remain undetected for several days even as uh, a probe and even some of the aliens themselves uh, not the octopuses from the uh, sorry the octopodes 
um, like creatures from the uh, the novel. They're more tripedal um, aliens with large heads, large triangular heads. In fact, um, looking somewhat reminiscent of the Independence Day aliens. They explore the basement, but the the people managed. Uh, Ogilvy, Ray, and Rachel manage to hide from them. And we see that the tripods are using a red weed to terraform the planet. And they are harvesting human blood and tissue to fertilize it. Um, that causes Ogilvy to have a mental breakdown um, and start frantically digging and shouting. Um, leading Ray to reluctantly kill him. They then manage to... They then get found by a second tripod probe uh, while they're asleep. Um, they get abducted by the tripod. Um, well, Rachel gets abducted. Ray gets intentionally abducted with a handful of grenades in order to destroy the tripod from within and save his daughter. A few days later, with some other refugees, uh, Ray and Rachel arrive in Boston, where they find the redweed withering and the tripods inexplicably collapsing. When an active one appears, Ray notices the birds landing on it, indicating that the force fields are down, and tells the soldiers, who then shoot it down. The tripod crashes, uh, an alien body sickly and pale um, sort of struggles halfway out of the ship before collapsing and dying uh, Ray and Rachel finally reach um, Marianne's parents house where they're reunited with uh, Marianne being his ex-wife where they're reunited with both her, her new partner and somehow Robbie who has also survived it is not a bad film as a film in itself. It's not bad. It's a little muddled in some of its theming. Um, it suffers from a lot of the... The post-9-11... Depression, I think we can call it. Um, that seems to have affected a lot of things made in the wake of 9-11. Where... There's a sense of, especially personified by Robbie, um, you know, he sees what the the tripods have done, what the, you know, the devastation they can re they've wrought, and wants to to strike back at them and get back at them, but he doesn't seem to know how to do it, or what to do, and it's it's very much echoing a sort of. Not just the impotent rage that teenagers get where they feel like they should be doing something and they must fight someone uh, but have no idea who. But it was also something that seemed very, very common post 9-11. The, the idea of making the people responsible pay regardless of how feasible or achievable that actually was to do 
not only that, the um, the film also echoes certain elements of 9-11 imagery. For example, as Ray runs through the crowd of people being disintegrated by the, the heat ray, um, you know, he ends up covered in this grey ash and he looks very similar to the, the victims who were covered in the clouds of dust and ash from the collapsing Twin Towers in New York. Yeah, it's very much a product of its time. It was definitely a successful film. It was generally quite positively received. And while many people don't really speak highly of it nowadays, it was the fourth most successful film of that year. And, you know, 2005 saw the release of, uh, you know, King Kong, Madagascar, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Batman Begins. It beat all of them. The only three ahead of it in worldwide rankings were Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Star Wars Episode Three, and The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. You know, so it was a very, very successful film. But it just doesn't seem to be one that's spoken about much nowadays i do think the performances are good um as do a lot of people um tom cruise is an actor that i always kind of struggle with in in most films it's it's very hard to forget that he is tom cruise um you know and he doesn't escape that here by any means um, Dakota Fanning is very, very good considering her her young age. She was much made fun of um, in the aftermath, or specifically her performance was in the similar sort of way to the the way that Haley Joel Osment was mocked in the, off of the back of the Sixth Sense um, a few years prior. Um, you know, you saw things like the scary movie franchise and other comedy spoofs of the of the era sort of having a, a, a hysterical child character that screamed a lot, um, generally wearing Fanning's outfit from this film. I I don't think it's fair. I think she's acting very much how a terrified ten year old would. You know. Um, her her actions and her her panic are very understandable. Robbie seems to be being set up for a story arc involving the um, the clash between him and his father. Um, you know, Ray is is very much a part time parent. Like Robbie calls him out at one point on saying, "You're only hoping to get us to Boston so that you can dump us on Mum." And then you don't have to do anything. You don't have to be responsible anymore. And there's no real payoff for any of that. There's, there's no payoff for, for Robbie leaving. It's just kind of done. And yeah, it just feels muddled. The efforts in the conclusion to have the um, to have Ray destroy a tripod um to save Rachel 
and uh, you know Ray noticing the the force field being down so that the soldiers can down another tripod does seem to have been done to to give the film more of a climax, um, you know, more of a a narrative, you know, action conclusion. Um, and it kind of works, you know. Um, I I really like that this film included the red weed. Um, the red weed is not really a feature in a couple of the other uh, adaptations that I'm going to talk about. Um, but I am very pleased that it was included here because I the visual of it is very, very well done. There's a point just before Rachel is abducted by the tripod where Ray is looking for her and sees the red weeds spread out over the landscape and he looks over from this hill and it's just you know down towards the Hudson River and it's just red everywhere and it's a beautiful visual um despite almost the kind of the terror behind it at the same time um Ogilvy in this uh, Tim Robbins character seems to be a mix of both the curate in terms of the way he is killed and the artilleryman in terms of his um his ideas of striking back from beneath the surface um you know building a better world underneath um and he works for for what he is i think um but generally i think where this succeeds as an adaptation is it captures something at the core story of War of the Worlds, which is that the aliens are undefeatable by all of Earth's military might. Um, and obviously the military might of the 21st century is significantly better than the military might of the, the late 19th century. Um, and also Ray is just an everyman character. You know, he's he's a he's a blue collar dock worker, so he's a bit different from the the philosophical writer in the novel. But he is just a normal person who just by luck and happenstance manages to survive all these terrible events around him. I don't think it's a necessarily a bad film and it's definitely not a bad adaptation of the story um but i do think there are better ones and i'm going to discuss some of them now the 2005 film for the war of the worlds was the second theatrically released one but by no means the first adaptation of the war of the worlds the first film adaptation of War of the Worlds was released in 1953. It was produced by George Powell, um, who would later go on to produce and direct the adaptation of H.G. Wells's The Time Machine um, only a few years later in 1960. And it was directed by Byron Haskin and starred Gene Bar Barry and Anne Robinson, who would have cameos in the Spielberg film as um, the parents of uh, Ray's estranged wife 
uh, towards the final scene of the film. Once again, the setting is moved to America, this time Southern California, where a large metallic meteor crash lands near the town of Linda Rosa. Um, atomic scientist Dr. Clayton Forrester, who is fishing nearby with some colleagues, um, investigates and meets um, USC library science instructor Sylvia Van Buren and her uncle, Pastor Matthew Collins. Later that night, a hatch on the object unscrews and opens, and the three men standing guard attempt to make contact while waving a white flag before being obliterated by a heat ray. The Marines, the United States Marine Corps, uh, surrounds the crash site with uh, tanks, guns, mortars, uh, artillery pieces, as reports start to pour in of identical cylinders landing all over the world and destroying cities. Three Martian war machines emerge from the sinister from the cylinder. Unlike the tripods of previous versions, these are flying ships um, designed um, almost resembling a manta ray but with the large heat ray projecting over the top of the ship. They open fire. Um, sorry, the Marines open fire after uh, Pastor Collins is incinerated, uh, attempting to make contact with the aliens. But the ships are revealed to be protected by a force field, and so the aliens counterattack and obliterate the marines and send them into a full retreat Forrester and Sylvia uh, try to escape they crash land uh, in a military spotter plane flying low so as to avoid the Martians um, and they land in an abandoned farmhouse um, they start to develop feelings for each other obviously due to the tensions that are going on um, however, a the house is then buried by yet another crashing cylinder. Um, a long cable with sort of an electronic eye, like an electric camera, explores the house and spots them, but Forrester cuts it off using an axe. However, a Martian soon enters the house and approaches Sylvia before Forrester injures that with an axe as well and collects some of its blood on a cloth. They manage to flee just before the farmhouse gets obliterated by the Martians, and he takes the, the camera and the blood sample to his team at Pacific Tech University in the hope of trying to find a way to defeat the invaders. They discover that the alien blood is anemic, and they learn that the Martians don't see as humans do. Meanwhile, the military response, uh, which we see mainly through the character of Major General Mann, played by Les Tremaine, he's at the Pentagon when he is told that the global Martian victory is estimated to be only six days away. Many of the world's major capitals are falling silent um, once the Martian machines start to move. Each of the cylinders contains three Martian fighting machines. 
And so the United States government makes the decision to drop an atomic bomb on the original group of Martian war machines in Southern California. However, the blast is totally ineffective and the aliens continue their advance heading towards Los Angeles. The city is evacuated for the most part. Um, the Pacific Tech crew uh, load up all their research and try to drive away. However, their trucks are stopped by a, a panicked mob um, who you know, destroy their equipment, trying to make room for more survivors to escape on the truck and steal the truck from Forrester, who ends up separated from Sylvia and his colleagues. All of the equipment gets destroyed, which demoralizes Forrester. However, he then realizes, based on a story he was told by Sylvia earlier um, about her, her uncle, um, that she would take refuge in a church. So he searches through several, um, finding praying survivors in every single one as the aliens move into um, Los Angeles and begin destroying it. Um, just as the aliens arrive near the church, however, um, you know, the church where he's found Sylvia and they embrace all the Martian machines suddenly lose power and crash one after another. The Forrester, Sylvia, and all the rest of them run outside and see one of the Martians trying to reach out from inside the crashed ship and dying. And, of course, you know, as in the original novel, they've been killed by the bacteria in our atmosphere. It is a good film. I seen it for the first time only a few days ago as of recording this um it's very very good i'd always been told it was a bit cheesy um part of that might be because um the special effects which originally won an academy award um as the film has been transferred through multiple media over the years um obviously from the original film print um, through to uh, less expensive colour stock and obviously onwards into to digital, uh, into video and digital formats, the, um, the special effects quality has decreased. Um, and so many people have sort of thought, as I did, that the film's original effects were of low quality. They're not. These effects are very, very good for the time. I'm a big fan of um, miniature model work as an upcoming episode I'm going to be doing on Thunderbirds. Um, well, a test. I'm a big fan of the, the classic miniature work, um, which in the modern era with the advent of CGI is a, a bit of a dying art. And... There are some very good examples of miniature work in this. There's even at one point when one of the Martian ships rises out of the uh, the crater where the impact, uh, where the cylinder originally impacted, um, projections underneath it of almost torch-like legs, um, you know, invisible legs uh, of force that the ship is using to 
to stand, as it were. That said, not all of the special effects have aged amazingly. The design and portrayal of the Martian, um, I'm not going to lie, did make me laugh. Um, there's a bit where you see the Martian outside of the house and he kind of runs through the bushes. And it's unintentionally comical because of how bad the rubber suit looks. And it's it's a shame because it's done well. I do think if we didn't have that shot and we had the first shot of the Martian be when the Martian lays its hand upon Sylvia's shoulder um, a couple of minutes later and her panicked reaction to that, I think that would have preserved the the sense of dread that we have at the Martian better than seeing it run through the bushes. I think that shot could have been exercised from the final cut um, because yeah, it's, it's, it hasn't aged well. <laughs> um, the film itself is very, very good. The, the panicked mob, um, you know, reading that, Ch those chapters in the book where the narrator's brother is, um, you know, him and his companions are caught in this this panicked mob as they they leave London. It's terrifying it, the 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 pandemonium that's ensuing, and obviously Victorian Britain is is very very different to fifties uh, America, but. I think even decades separated from the 50s, we have an idea of what the the wholesome 50s Americana is due to American television, American film, um, you know, things like Back to the Future that we've seen of this era. And so we know sort of what to expect in small town America, even, even in a, a big city like Los Angeles. They are portrayed in these sorts of things as small-time Americana. And that is echoed here um, very, very well. Um, you know, at one point, not really realising that the... Uh, what the cylinder is, only realising that it's giving off radiation. The Forrester joins Sylvia and a few of the others at a square dance in the middle of the town centre before the EMP goes off, um, just as the heat ray incinerates the uh, the three men guarding it. And, and that's when they realise that something's actually gone wrong, when they realise that all of their watches have stopped at the exact same time. Um, and there's something so delightfully quaint about it and then, of course, seeing the panicked mob towards the end of the film um, and, you know, the, the stark contrast of that compared to the, you, you know, the quaint nature of what was, what we'd seen previously, that was shocking. And done very, very well, I thought. Um, and helped to drive that part of the the terror and the panic home. Um, 
you know, between between the book and this film, it captures that in one of the earliest examples I can think of. I mean, that sort of mass panic is one of those that's become almost a genre staple when it comes to like dystopian, uh, you know, apocalyptic fiction. Um, you know, the mass panic is everyone's kind of in it for themselves. And seeing that kind of laid bare against, as I said, quaint 50s Americana was phenomenal. It really was. It was a powerful depiction. So, yes, big fan of that. Um, the Martian fighting machines are amazing. They they look incredible. The special effects used for their beams are not you know, obviously were highly sophisticated for the time, um, but now look kind of quaint um, and simple. Um, you know, the sort of disintegration effect that they did with a hundred-odd matte paintings, uh, apparently, um, you know, could now sort of be done in basic video editing software by a lot of people. Uh, well, you know, home editing software, anyway. And, you know, I think that's just a sign of how far special effects have advanced. It keeps the original ending, however, it does suggest more of a sort of divine aspect to it with everyone praying in the church. But again, that might be part of the the religious nature of America, um, especially with the 50s Americana, it's, the, you know, there's supposed to be a separation of church and state in America, but there is also, like, the one nation under God. And, you know, you know, everyone seems to go to church on Sundays in every American TV show. Um, you know, every quaint family, nuclear family sitcom, everyone goes to church on Sundays, whether they believe or not. It's yeah, like I said, there is there is a lot of things about this film that are quaint, but it is it is good and doing the kind of the worldwide invasion works very well. There's a lot of things in this film which seem to be echoed in the 2005 film. Um, you know, the probe in the the farmhouse is very, very similar to the probe in the basement. And just like the one in the basement, um, you know, just like the one in the farmhouse in this film, Ray hacks the head off of that probe in the 2005 film with an axe. Um, there's no real echo for some of the characters. I think Major General Mann is the closest resemblance we have to the artilleryman, um, but he's a much more capable um, soldier than the artilleryman is, especially with being a general. Um, the pastor resembles more Ogilvy in terms of his demise and demeanour rather than the curate of the novel. Um, but yeah, it's 
it's a good film. It's, I think it holds up remarkably well, despite the criticisms I've made of it. Um, you know, it's still a good film. And it was clearly influential on science fiction as a genre. Um, you know, science fiction film, almost as much as the the novel would have been on early science fiction writing. So I think if you have any sort of fondness for classical science fiction, um, Star Trek, Forbidden Planet, um, that sort of ilk, this is up there with those as being one of those films that I think you need to see. The only major criticism I have of it is... And this is something that is very much of its time, is the way the character of Sylvia is written. She's sort of presented as being enamoured with Forrester by his reputation, even before she actually meets him. Um, like she's describing that Forrester's coming, unknowing that she's describing it her, you know, him to Forrester himself, uh, not recognizing him because he's clean shaven as opposed to the picture that she'd seen previously. Um, and, you know, they they develop feelings for each other, and which is, is very much, yes, of course, the hero has to have a love interest. And the, the most egregious thing for me is the hysterics that she launches into. Um, and some of them are understandable, like the high stress situation in the farmhouse and her reaction to the, like her reaction to the Martian touching her shoulder, I think is done very, very well. One that does stand out as more egregious is when her uncle, the pastor, is walking towards the Martians and she starts frantically screaming in the um the foxhole bunker where the the marines are based and screaming and yelling and trying to like climb out and she's in complete hysterics um but he's not even dead yet like if she was in those hysterics after he got killed that would be understandable but it's just that he's walking out there and she launches into hysterics and yeah, that was another moment that took me out of the film and, and made me laugh as being like, this is very much a product of its time. Um, but as I said, the film is still good and I recommend it. Um, but while I've looked at two films, I want to discuss two very different ways of adapting the story next. So from perhaps the most famous adaptation of War of the Worlds, we come to perhaps the most infamous. War of the Worlds was adapted into a radio drama as part of the anthology series The Mercury Theatre on the Air, directed and narrated by actor and future filmmaker uh, Orson Welles. Orson Welles was 23 years old at the time. He was years ahead of his, um, you know, his turn as the director of Citizen Kane. And he 
did an adaptation of The War of the Worlds to serve as a radio drama for the Halloween episode of the Mercury Theatre on the Air on CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System Radio Network. The episode became infamous for causing a panic among its listening audience, although the scale of the panic is hotly debated um, and has been through the decades since. The first half of the show, um, which runs for about 30 minutes without a break, um, starts with an introductory monologue um, based on the beginning of the original novel. However, after that, the programme takes on the format of an evening of typical radio programming. Um, you know, the the uh, performances of a local band um, being periodically interrupted by news bulletins. The first few bulletins interrupt the programme and they're relatively calm reports of strange explosions on Mars, and then that's followed by a seemingly unrelated report of an object falling on a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. From there, though, the crisis continues to escalate dramatically, um, with uh, a correspondent reporting live from Grover's Mill describing creatures emerging from an alien craft, and incinerating police and onlookers with a heat ray until his audio feed goes dead silent. Um, that's then followed by a, a rapid series of news updates detailing the beginning of this alien invasion and the military's futile efforts to stop it. We hear, um, you know, we hear planes being uh, shot down before they can drop bombs. Um, on the, the alien fighting machines. We hear. A. A news correspondent. On the rooftop of a Manhattan radio station. Describing crowds fleeing. Clouds of poison smoke. Released by these Martian war machines. And dropping like flies. And as the gas. Approaches his location, he coughs and falls silent. And then just before the, the half-hour mark of the show, we hear a lone ham radio operator calling out into the, the dead silence, saying, is there anyone in the air? Is there anyone? With no response. And only then, over 30 minutes after Wells's original introduction, does the programme take its first break and... Um, Reannounce itself as a dramatization. The second half of the show shifts to a more conventional radio drama format, uh, which was typical of um, radio shows of the time, which follows a survivor, um, an astronomer in this case, uh, Dr. Pearson, played by Wells himself, um, who was at Grover's Mill, New Jersey dealing with the aftermath of the invasion um, and the Martian occupation. The final segment lasts for about 16 minutes, 
um, goes through events quite quickly. Um, it doesn't take the the three weeks of the original story, um, or the even the three days of the um, the film adaptations, and it just concludes, you know, as in the original novel that the the Martians have been defeated by microbes rather than humans, and then the broadcast ends about an hour after it started with uh, an out-of-character announcement by Wells himself in which he cheerfully compares the show to their equivalent of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. (sighs) The broadcast has become famous throughout the years for convincing some of its listeners into believing that a Martian invasion was actually taking place due to the the breaking news style of storytelling that was employed in the first half of the show. This was helped by the fact that the Mercury Theatre on the Air was a sustaining program, which basically meant it didn't have commercial interruptions because it didn't have sponsors. Um... So the first break in the drama came all after all of the the news reports had taken place. So popular legend holds that some of the radio audiences were probably listening to a popular uh, show on the other station, a variety show called The Chase and Sanborn Hour, um, with a comedian named Edgar Bergen and his ventriloquist dummy. And the in that show's first variety break, um, usually a musical number, they would have switched sides to the Mercury Theatre on the air and listened into War of the Worlds, thereby missing the introduction that it was fictional and taking it as, um, you know, actual breaking news. And, you know, there are accounts from people that they, that, that did happen. They did panic. They th- they heard these stories and thought America was under attack by Martians. But modern research does suggest that this only happened in quite rare occurrences. However, in days after the adaptation, there was this widespread outrage in the media. Um, The program's format was described as deceptive by newspapers and public figures, which led to an outcry against the broadcasters, calls for regulation by the FCC. But no punitive action was ever taken by any officials, and it went on to secure Wells's fame, essentially. Um, it proved that he was able to tell a story in an innovative way and and a dramatic way and, you know, helped secure his career despite his initial fears that, you know, the the aftermath of the programme would ruin him. The show went on the air at uh, 8pm Eastern Standard Time. Um, By 8.32, the producer, John Houseman, um, noticed that the CBS supervisor, Davidson Taylor, stepped out of the studio to take a telephone call in the control room. Taylor apparently returned four minutes later looking pale as death 
being told he'd been ordered to interrupt the War of the Worlds broadcast immediately with an announcement of its fictional content. However, by the time the order was given, the fictional news reporter played by actor Ray Collins was choking on the poison gas, the black smoke of the Martians, as they were overwhelming New York City. And so the programme was less than a minute away from its first scheduled break anyway. So that announcement was made over that break by Dan Seymour, the um, one of the producers of the show. Sorry, the announcer of the show. But it does mean that if you miss that initial announcement, your first announcement that this was fictional didn't happen until about 35 minutes in. And then your next one didn't come until the 50-minute mark, um, shortly before Wells's out-of-character speech concluded the show. You know, people at the radio station said that, um, you know, actor uh, Stefan Schnabel recalled that policemen started to trickle in, and at first just a few, then a few more, and then the room was full of policemen who were... Uh, trying to interrupt and stop the show, but being stopped by the executives. Wells himself um, was aware of the, the sensation that the broadcaster made, but not quite the extent of it, and went to the Mercury Theatre, where he was involved in an all-night rehearsal of Danton's death. And shortly after midnight, one of the cast, who was another late arrival, told Wells that news about the War of the Worlds was being flashed in Times Square, they left the theatre and apparently stood on the corner of Broadway and 42nd Street and read the lighted bulletin that circled the New New York Times building saying Orson Welles causes panic. And of course, you know, you have to remember this was this was 1938. This was shortly after the um, the invasion of the Sudetenland uh, and the Munich Pact that um, came about as a result. by Nazi Germany. So there was a very feel, real fear that war was in the air, again, in a similar way to the, the original novel. Wells continued with the rehearsal of Danton's death, um, which was scheduled to open November 2nd, and left that rehearsal shortly after dawn on October 31st. He was operating on about three hours of sleep, uh, when CBS apparently called him to a press conference, he read a statement that was later printed in newspapers nationwide and took questions from reporters. And he said, uh, I'll read some of it. Uh, question, were you aware of the terror that such a broadcast would stir up? Definitely not. The technique I used was not original with me. It was not even new. I anticipated nothing unusual. Should you have toned down the language of the drama? No, you don't play murder in soft words. Why was the story changed to put in names of American cities and government officers? H.G. Wells used real cities in Europe, and to make the play more acceptable to American listeners, we used real cities in America. Of course, I'm terribly sorry now. Despite the um, furore and uh, panic, almost, that seems to have been generated by the the newspapers and how they confronted Orson Welles in the aftermath. It doesn't seem that the panic was quite as widespread as the papers seem to exaggerate that it was. Um, Someone, 
I've forgotten the... I can't seem to find the actual quote now. Um, but someone did say that um, back in back in the 30s, when people were hearing of a story, they would phone the police or the local news office to ascertain what the story was. Um, and so it's quite possible that a lot of the newspapers that were reacting to it were being told that there was a panic and decided to run with that story, um, you know, due to the, the deluge of calls they would have been receiving. However, according to um, Robert E. Bartholomew, an authority on mass panic outbreaks, he said that there is a growing consensus among sociologists that the extent of the panic was greatly exaggerated. Regarding the actual adaptation itself, it is a very, very good listen. And you can see why people who maybe may have missed the uh, the fictional um, warning at the start may have been led to believe it was real. It is presented very much as breaking news. Um and then snippets of radio conversations that have somehow made their way onto the air. It's very dramatic. The fight against the the Martian fighting machines, the sacking as they, they make their way down from New Jersey into New York City, um, the heat ray, the black smoke, they're all present. And... You know, there's even one point of the story where um, the Secretary of the Interior, who isn't named in the, the play, um, but the Secretary of the Interior reads a brief statement trying to reassure a panicked nation, after which it is reported that more explosions have been observed on Mars, indicating that more machines are on the way. There's emergency response bulletins, there's damage and evacuation reports. Um, it's it's phenomenal. It was really, really well written. And yeah, it's, I do think it's very, very good and very terrifying. Um, you know, the, the, the attack on New York is similar to the attack on London and the original, uh, the original story, you know, Martian cylinders are described as falling all over the country. Um, you know, they say that there's been some in uh, Colorado, I think, is, is mentioned, or Chicago. Um, and it's just, yeah, e even the final echoing call over the radio from a ham radio operator is... It's phenomenally acted by everyone involved and there's a very clear um idea to use the medium of radio um for example the the news report in grover's mill which is suddenly cut to silence um you know as the reporter is shouting about incoming flames and he's cut off mid-sentence and there's a second or two of dead air which is not something you're supposed to have on a radio show and then the announcer explains that the remote broadcast was interrupted due to some difficulty with our field transmission. It's 
absolutely fantastic. The second part of the drama, uh, which focuses more on a sort of standard radio serial, uh, you know, dialogue and monologue on the part of uh, Professor Pearson, played by Wells, who survived the attack on Grover's Mill in a similar way to the the narrator surviving the uh, the heat ray attack on Horsall Common in the original novel. Um, it's okay. It's short. Um, but obviously it suffers from the different style um, compared to the, the rest of the work, which does make it stand out. He does encounter a militiaman um, who holds quite fascist ideals and declares his intent to to use the Martian weapons and take control of both races. Um, and Pearson says, I want no part of your world, leaves him uh, away. And that's a more aggressive and updated version of the artilleryman from the original novel. I, I wonder perhaps if that was Orson Welles maybe making some comment on the rise of fascism that was seen in Europe at the time. Um, I, I don't know much about Orson Welles particularly. I don't know much about his politics. Um, but it's entirely possible, considering just the time frame in which this was written. Um, and yeah, the Martians die. You know, the Pearson arrives in New York City in the ruins of it and discovers that the Martians have died to germs the same way they have. And he says that life eventually returns to normal and he finishes his recollections of the invasion and its aftermath. Um, it's... Yeah, it's, it's very different to the rest of the story. And suffers maybe a li little bit in contrast to the um the phenomenal adaptation of the original part of the the first half of the the dramatization as in that, that is an actual dramatization that uses the medium of radio to its fullest extent whereas the the radio drama of the second segment is it's it's an audio drama it's it's like reading part of the book um but what well, well, more explicitly having that part of the book read aloud to you the only character involved is wells uh you know wells's character professor pearson we never hear the militiaman speak we just hear um pearson describe him and what he says in a similar way to the original how the narrator presents the original novel um, you know, unlike a, a radio drama that we might have got at the time, which would have had a full cast. So I think that second section does suffer somewhat. The closing statement of the, the dramatisation, which is the final part of it, really, with Wells being out of character, resuming his role as the host, and telling the listeners that it was meant to be merely a holiday offer holiday offering um 
you know, he, he stay, it, it's quite tongue in cheek. Um, you know, he says, you know, we've annihilated the world and utterly destroyed CBS before your very ears, but you will be relieved. I hope to hear that both institutions are still open for business. And, you know, his it's one of his final lines saying, you know, if your doorbell rings and there's nobody there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. The popular myth is that the disclaimer was hastily added at the assistance of the executives to quell the panic inspired by the program. However, the opposite is true. Um, Wells added it at the last minute and delivered it over the objections of uh, executive Davison Taylor, who feared that reading it on the air would expose them to uh, legal liability. Um, but I do think because of the high drama of the original parts, the the first section of this uh, of the the radio broadcast, I think it is necessary. Um, obviously, it, it breaks the fourth wall. Wells is directly talking to the audience, but even then, there is something fun about it, um, which kind of lulls you back from the the horror of what you've just listened to. It is good. The original broadcast, I heard it on YouTube. It's available on CD. It's available as it's available in many, many, many places and has been throughout the years. Um, and yeah, I, I strongly recommend listening to it, at least the first part, because using them, it's, it's a great example of adapting a work to a new medium. I've I've spoken before about this in uh, different episodes how um things seem to get sometimes when when works are adapted there's not as much effort made to incorporate them to a new medium um for example when animation gets adapted into live action it tends to suffer because you can just do different things with animation than you can with live action um with this, the, the, you know, the novel is the written word. The radio is all audio. You are listening to it. And there's a very concentrated effort on the part of Wells and the other writers and cast members to make this something to be listened to and enjoyed as being listened to. And as I said, to use the medium of radio, to use the 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 sudden news, the, the rolling news cycle and the, the breaking news and the you know the the dramatic moments that you would have in an emergency. Um you know, by intercutting them with what you'd expect as a standard radio program. And I think it works very, very well. And so, yes, I definitely recommend listening to the Orson Welles broadcast if you have never listened to it before. But there's one other War of the Worlds adaptation that I want to talk about. And I think it might possibly be one of my favourite adaptations of any piece of media ever. Now, I believe I said earlier in this episode that 
most of these adaptations that I'm discussing, most of the my experience of the War of the Worlds, has only really taken place within these last two weeks. Um, I read the novel for the first time these last two weeks. I saw the 1953 film for the first time these last two weeks. I heard the radio broadcast for the first time these last two weeks. I listened to what I'm about to discuss for the first time within these two weeks. However, somehow I was definitely aware of some of it beforehand as there is there were two songs on this album that I'm about to talk about that I had heard before. Now, the album I'm about to discuss is Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds. It is a rock opera masterpiece, as far as I'm concerned. It is one of the the best concept albums I think I've ever heard. It features um, a rock band, an orchestra, a narrator, um, actors, and it just carries the story of the War of the Worlds in phenomenal fashion. Now, Jeff Wayne has had a, a long and distinguished career as a musician. Um, he's written approximately 3,000 advertising jingles, uh, which have appeared on television in the United Kingdom. Um, you know, and that's... He, he's also composed numerous television show themes, but War of the Worlds is quite possibly his most well-known work. And, you know, this this album has spawned um, adaptations of its own. Like, there is a PlayStation video game, which is based more on this musical than the actual novel. There are live tours. There's an animated film. Um, there is even currently running in London itself an immersive 5D VR experience, which is currently at the top of my list of attractions to one day visit. Um, you know, where you can go through these interactive sets and interact with real actors while hearing the music and the story of the War of the Worlds. <sighs> yeah, this is, this is by far one of my favourite things I think I've experienced this, this, since doing this podcast. And catching up on things like this that I have missed is one of the reasons why I am doing this podcast and why I am looking back at classics like this. As I said, I, I, I think I've been aware of at least two of the songs from it. Um, firstly, the opening Eve of the War, um, because the 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 late motif of the Martians, you know, the dramatic bam, 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 you know, I was aware of, I'd heard that before, before I started, you know, before I even got the idea for this episode from an advert for the immersive experience, I'd heard that and I knew it was the War of the Worlds, but I don't know how I knew that. 
and I also think I've already I've heard the single that was released from this album, which was the um, the ballad "Forever Autumn," um, which has an, an edited single release, and was the only song released bef- uh, that was written prior to the rest of the album. Um, you know, it started life as all things a jingle for a Lego commercial. Um, before lyrics were added to it um, by Gary Osborne and Paul Vigras, who released it uh, under their, their rock duo, Vigras and Osborne. Um, and then it was then brought by them back to, to Jeff Wayne for inclusion in The War of the Worlds. So I said I, I like this adaptation, and I think to explain why I'm going to have to go through it, this adaptation has a deliberate effort on the part of Jeff Wayne and the other people involved. You know, Gary Osborne, who helped him with the um, the lyrics, and other people who helped him with the script. It's part of a deliberate effort to adapt the War of the Worlds novel. Um in its original time frame of the late 19th century, and in keeping most of the major moments from the War of the Worlds story intact, you know, the 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 heat ray on Horsell Common, the um the demise of the Thunder Child, the black smoke, the red weed, the death of the curate, the artilleryman's grand plans for living underground. They're all here. Everything is here. It's all intact. That said, there are some um, adaptational differences. But to me, they improve a lot of the story. Um, The main character, the the narrator, is called the journalist in this. And I believe in one of the live shows, he's even credited as George Herbert... Uh, which is obviously a reference to H.G. Wells himself. Um, and he's an amalgamation of both the narrator in the novel and his brother. So the journalist in this travels to London. Rather than being already married, he's travelling to London to find his fiance, um, Carrie, who does not exist in the novel. Um, and to try and, you know, he is separated from her when she's on the paddle steamer that leaves Britain, um, that is saved by the Thunderchild. The curate, who in this is a character called Parson Nathaniel, um, he also gets given a wife um, named Beth, who does not exist in the novel, but again works really well to illustrate his his character and his decline to madness, um, which is a lot more gradual in this. The journalist in this is played by uh, acclaimed Shakespearean stage actor Richard Burton. Um, He gives a very, very good performance. He's got a a very deep baritone voice, um, which helps to anchor the the spoken parts of the story a lot of his dialogue um 
is almost lifted verbatim from the original novel, sometimes condensed, um, you know, sentences that might be spread across a paragraph in the original novel are condensed into, you know, a much smaller paragraph with the intermediary sentences excised um, to sort of streamline the story a bit. And any new dialogue is definitely made to feel as though it is part of H.G. Wells' original work. The the language used, the the descriptors, the adjectives, they're all very similar to H.G. Wells' writing style. And it fits, and it all works very, very well. The journalist isn't just spoken, though. He is also a singing part. The sung thoughts of the journalist are portrayed in this album by Justin Hayward, um, the lead singer and guitarist of the Moody Blues. Um, and he acts singing lines um, for the journalist on several of the songs. Um, other guest artists of the time, including um, Thin Lizzy's Phil Linnett, uh, who plays Parson Nathaniel, English singer-songwriter David Essex, who plays the Artilleryman, and Julie Covington, who's perhaps best known for recording the original version of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, plays um, Beth, uh, the Parson's wife. And their roles as well all feature a mixture of um, acted lines and singing, but with those actors doing both parts, as opposed to the journalist, where Justin Hayward does the singing, Richard Burton does the speaking. This song is... Sorry, this song. This album is incredible. It's... All of the songs are long. Uh, I'm just going to get that out of the way. I don't think there's a single song here, um, with the exception of the epilogue, that is shorter than five minutes. Uh, and most of them sort of hit eight minutes plus. Um, but it works. It works so well. Um, the opening song is The Eve of the War. Um, it features the original opening from the novel, uh, which has been echoed across all of these adaptations of, um, you know envious eyes looking at Earth from across space and drawing their plans against us. And, yeah, Eve of the War introduces a lot of the leitmotifs um, that will become present throughout the work, um, specifically the main theme of the Martians, which is this you know, triumphant back and forth between the rock band and the string orchestra. In terms of the actual story cover, The Eve of the War tells the first couple of chapters of the book, um, you know, from the up until where the cylinder lands on Horsall Common, um, but just before it unscrews. Uh, the next song, Horsall Common and the Heat Ray, is quite long, uh, 11 minutes, uh, 11 and a half minutes in fact, introduces a a guitar refrain for to echo the sound of the heat ray, 
and several other new leitmotifs added to the Martians. It covers their unleashing of the heat ray, um, killing the, the deputation that approaches them. Although Ogilvy, despite being mentioned in Eve of the War, isn't mentioned as killed um, during Horsall Common. Um, and for me, this is the only song that kind of outstays its welcome a bit. It's... It echoes its refrains quite a lot. Um, and I think maybe it's the one song that could possibly have been trimmed. There's no sung lines in it. It's entirely musical with the exception of the spoken word dialogue by Richard Burton. Obviously, without um, his wife being present, the um, the journalist doesn't leave um, as the narrator in the original novel does. Um, so he is inside his house already when the artilleryman comes up to him. Um, that leads to the song The Artilleryman and the Fighting Machine, um, which is kind of a two-part song. Um, the two of them sort of head to London. He's trying. Uh, the journalist is trying to find Carrie. The artilleryman says he should report to headquarters. Um, David Essex playing the artilleryman only has speaking roles in this particular song, but at one point as they arrive, uh, sort of at Richmond Hill, north of London, um, that's where the fighting machines appear. Um, to which David Essex cries out, look, there they are, what did I tell you? And the the new leitmotif for the fighting machines debuts, and the song has like a, a tonal shift into a much more dramatic fashion um, with Richard Burton's narration um, telling the story essentially of uh, the similar sort of moments for when he's caught in the River Thames uh, and scalded by the water that had been heated up by the heat ray, um, how the artillery guns managed to take down one of the Martian fighting machines, and the the Martian retreat carrying the the body of their fallen comrade. All of which is in the the original novel, and as obviously the the parts were um, at Weybridge, the Weybridge ferry. That then leads to the song Forever Autumn. Um, Forever Autumn features more dialogue from Richard Burton, obviously, but is sung by um, Justin Hayward. His thoughts are on Carrie as he heads towards London to try and find her. Um, while he's in London, London is attacked and he joins the throng of... The journalist joins the throng of refugees that are leaving the city. Um, you know, fleeing the Martian advance and heads down to the coast, um, the Essex coast in this. Um, and that's where he sees Carrie on the paddle steamer. Um, it's a brilliant song. I really am a fan of Justin Hayward's vocals on this. Um, there's a repeated refrain of there's some beautifully poetic lyrics in this in this particular song but there's a, a refrain of because you're not here and when Justin Hayward first sings it it sounds almost mournful towards the end of the song it takes on to me anyway a sort of angry tone 
And that does actually echo part of the original story. In the original novel, there is a part where um, the narrator is sort of lamenting how he's been separated from his wife and almost kind of is angry at her for not being around. And, you know, it's um, this sort of undeserved anger on her part. Um, you know, he's he's not... It's not like he's blaming her for his situation, but he is uh, almost, yeah, just angry at the fact that she isn't there. He Almost like he feels abandoned. And I think that Justin Hayward singing Cause You're Not Here in a sort of angrier tone as the paddle steamer leaves towards the end of the song fits with that um that feeling from the original novel so yeah i like that that leads to the final song of the first part because like the original book this is split into two halves and uh when it originally released it released as a, a double lp obviously it came out in 1978 so it was on vinyl vinyl records uh side one and side two um and the final part of the first half of the the album is Thunderchild. Thunderchild is my favorite song on the whole album. If like if I had to narrow it down to one song to listen separate from the rest, Thunderchild is it. Thunderchild again features the narration, but the singing this time is performed by uh Chris Thompson, um who's a singer and guitarist known mainly for his work with uh, Manfred Mann's Earth Band, uh, specifically his lead vocal on Blinded by the Light. And he sings as the voice of humanity as he describes the Thunderchild's battle with the Martian fighting machines. And, you know, people start cheering for the ship before its uh, inevitable destruction. And... Yeah, it's it's a really rousing piece. It feels like this big centerpiece. Um, you know, Thunderchild gets a whole chapter in the novel. A whole chapter is just called The Thunderchild. So, yeah, the it's one of the more triumphant parts of the whole album. Uh, but obviously... The Thunderchild is destroyed, and as the narration says, Earth now belongs to the Martians. And then we get an intermission before we head to the second part. The second part is called Earth Under the Martians. Um, it starts with a song called The Red Weed, part one, um, where wandering away from, wandering back towards London, the journalist. Um, notices the red weed everywhere and starts describing it and how it grows. There's a a, a new leitmotif that's introduced purely for the red weed um, and how it's described. That then leads to him finding the body of a parson, who is Parson Nathaniel. Um, and that leads to the song The Spirit of Man. And we find Beth trying to encourage Nathaniel, who 
is broken. He is a broken man seeing the Martian invaders as devils and, you know, that he warned the people against them and they take refuge in a house, a cylinder crashes upon the house, Beth is killed in the rubble and without her to sort of spur him to more positive thoughts, the Parsons depression becomes more severe um which is echoed by the narration and then that leads to the next song the red weed part two where struggling in the aftermath of beth's death um the parson's madness only grows more pronounced until um the journalist is forced to incapacitate him which leads to his body being taken away by a Martian handling machine. Um, and yeah, that's... It's completely echoing the story from uh, from the novel for the curate, uh, just with the addition of, of his wife. Um, Phil Linnett does a, a great performance as the parson. He... It's something about Phil Linnett's voice. He makes him sound like a sort of very fire and brimstone preacher, um, which is certainly an interesting take. And Julie Covington's voice trying to encourage him um, to look for the the spirit of man, the hope um, that he seems to have lost, is this nice, soft encouragement in her voice. And it's... It's really quite a beautiful song, Spirit of Man. Um, then we get to the final section of the album. Um, the Parson... Uh, sorry, with the Parson dead, the journalist is eventually able to leave the house. He encounters the artilleryman again, who recognises him. And the artilleryman says that he has a plan... And starts to tell uh, the journalist about his plans for the Brave New World, as the song is called. Which is a 12-minute epic sung and acted by David Essex. As he talks about um, the society that they can build underground. And there's some triumphant music in the orchestra and the rock band. Um, you know, sort of horns a horn section almost um kind of cheering the um cheering the artilleryman's ideas on but then obviously of course as in the novel um the journalist realizes that the artilleryman's plans and well his dreams and his uh ability don't don't align um and thus leaves the artilleryman behind and it's implied towards the end of the song that the the artilleryman is going mad and it's really well done it's it's a very good song there's some some great refrains in it um especially towards the end of the song that suggests that the the artilleryman is losing his grip on sanity and but the the actual 
epic of the song is fantastic. Um, and then for the final parts, the final main song is Dead London, um, where, you know, walking through London, the journalist sees the aftermath of the, the Martian attack and hears their, their death wails all throughout the album. Um, the Martians have had this triumphant oola sound. Um, you know, the Martians are described as talking and, and hooting and hollering at several points in the novel. Um, but it's never really described what they sound like, except for their dying wail of oola um, as they die in the final chapter. And the oola becomes their their main refrain throughout this album and appears triumphantly in several of their songs. For example, um, The Fighting Machine, Thunder Child, Forever Autumn. Um, but here now in Dead London, we hear their how sick they are, obviously succumbing to the bacteria again. And then in the middle of one of their Ula Wales, everything stops. And the narrator comments on it and how the sudden silence drove him to madness, which is exactly what happens in the novel. And he runs out to try and be killed by a fighting machine, and that's when he sees that the, the Martians are all dead. The you know, the the sudden silence then leads to a a reprise almost of Eve of the War as he goes now with grim determination to end his life. Um, but obviously Dead London starts with an echo of that same leitmotif from Eve of the War, but softer and more sombre. And I think it really works. And then we get um, an epilogue, which covers a lot of the original epilogue of the novel and the thoughts that the journalist has about what might happen if the Martians return. And then we get something unique to the album, which is a second epilogue um, featuring NASA sending probes to Mars before losing contact with the probes and other relay stations around the world. And we hear the sound effects that we have come to attribute attribute to the Martians um, in previous songs such as Horse All Common and the Heat Ray and the Artilleryman and the Fighting Machine. We hear those sound effects suggesting that the Martians have not gone and they are coming back. Which is a brilliant way to end the album and is more of a a distinct tease um, than any other adaptation, but echoes the sort of the tease that we get about Venus in the original novel. And I think it's fantastic. Um, the entire album was actually redone in 2012. Um, there's a, a Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds, The New Generation, with a completely new cast, new instrumentation. Um, a large part of it uses a lot more synthesizers and uh, electronic elements. 
some of which work, some of which I think overshadow the original orchestra and rock band. Um, and were quite cri criticised as a result. The... Obviously gets a new cast. Um, Liam Neeson now takes over as the spoken words of the journalist. And does a brilliant job, even if his voice isn't quite as dramatic as Richard Burton's. Um, Gary Barlow of Take That takes over as the vocals for the sung thoughts of the journalist. Ricky Wilson of the Kaiser Chiefs um, takes over as the artilleryman. And was quite criticised um, for his efforts in the speaking parts. I think a large part of that being owing to the fact that Ricky Wilson is not an actor. But his actual singing was fantastic. Like, his version of Brave New World is very, very good. Um, Maverick Sabre, um, a singer-songwriter from Ireland is takes over as Parson Nathaniel. Joss Stone takes over as Beth. Um, Alex Clare, an English singer-songwriter, takes over as the voice of humanity uh, for Thunderchild, and he does a brilliant version of Thunderchild. I'd actually say his version of Thunderchild is an improvement on Chris Thompson's original. Um... And there's even the addition of uh, the voice of the Martians um, in certain lines, um, specifically in the epilogue as well. There are also some changes made to the format of the album um, for this this release. It's still split into two discs. Um with disc one being the coming of the Martians, disc two being Earth under the Martians. However, the the brief song "The Artilleryman Returns" is extended. It's now three minutes long, um, and that features uh, the journalist reuniting with the artilleryman before Brave New World starts. Um, Dead London is now split at the halfway mark where the um, the silence drops. Um, just before the reprise of Eve of the War kickstarts, so that the Dead London Part 1, up until the silence, and the the narration that follows it is Part 1, and then the reprise of Eve of the War is Dead London Part 2. Um, which I think is not entirely a necessary choice, but I can see why they've done it. The album has also spawned a live tour as well. And it's been touring since 2006. Um, so a recent planned anniversary was obviously put on hold due to COVID and is launching in arenas this year. Um, the stage cast, uh, it, was, it was in the West End for a while, the West End of London. Um, it's had um, a lot of cast changes. It's doubled its size of production since the original recording. Um, it's presented with a CG film. Uh, well, some CGI and some um, actors, like an ensemble of actors, including Anne-Marie Wayne, 
who is uh, Jeff Wayne's daughter, um, portraying Carrie. Now, originally, obviously, this used the Richard Burton voiceover and was done with a projection of Richard Burton's face onto a large maquette head. However, with the new generation casting, um, it now uses a hologram display uh, of and recorded footage of Liam Neeson in the role of the journalist. And I think that's the superior version of the live show, just because the the film is much better, obviously much better quality, having the journalist acti- acting through it. Um, it does make some um, choices which echo the new generation recording. However, the live shows have also toned down some of the more synthesized and electronica elements of that recording for the live shows. Um, so it seems to be a good match of both um, versions of the album. That's, uh, there's been, I've seen a recorded version of both shows. Um, and I definitely think the recording of the more modern show was superior. Um, the recording I saw featured uh, Marty Pello taking over as the sung thoughts of the journalist. And he did a brilliant job. Um, Ricky Wilson returned as the artilleryman and... I'm not sure if it's because he'd been on tour, but his acting was far superior in the live show compared to the um, original album that he was on. Not the original album, the Next Generation album. And yeah, he's, he's, his performance was far superior. And his performance of Brave New World on stage was incredible. A very physically demanding role. And he 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 did a brilliant job. Um, also in the version I watched, um, Beth and Nathaniel were played by um, Kerry Ellis, who is a stage actress, and Jason Donovan. Um, and they were both very good. I do think that um, Kerry Ellis's portrayal of Beth wasn't quite as soft as Judy Covington's. However, I really like Jason Donovan's performance as Parson Nathaniel. Um, both Maverick Saber and Phil Linnett um, in the recordings do a brilliant job, but they do come across as a, like I said, a fire and brimstone style American preacher, not a um you know a parish parson from um from Houghton County's England however Jason Donovan's performance I'm not sure if it's just cuz he is a better actor um than the two musicians he does a brilliant job of acting like a truly broken man um, and some of his line delivery of the spoken dialogue I just found far superior to either of the recorded versions. The live show itself also features 
it's it's halfway between watching a film because you obviously you have the projected story on the screen a live musical concert because you have the band and the string orchestra on stage being conducted by Jeff Wayne himself and in a lot of cases a lot of the original musicians are still present as well but also a play because you have the actors and the singers and there are even large props that descend on the stage um you know during the middle of the artillerymen and the fighting machines a martian fighting machine that's about 40 feet tall descends on the stage with its long tripod legs and remains there through the end of the first act you know it then returns in dead london um but now it's swaying and tilting um you know brave new world features this elaborate set piece bridge that the artilleryman is able to interact with it's just yeah it's it's very very well done it's a it's a very incredible piece of work and i think the the live show is fantastic and i would love to actually see it live but the the home media release is well worth a watch if you can get hold of it and i I genuinely recommend it. I think the cast um, that they have for it is phenomenal. I think the the visuals are incredible. The music is fantastic. And yeah, I just I don't think I can praise this version of the War of the Worlds enough. It's as I said, I think it's one of my favorite adaptations because it's a story but it's also an album you know you can you can listen to the album and get the whole story of the novel in a, a concise and quick way and not lose anything really you know the 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 main thrust of the novel is still present due to the due to the journalist's uh, dialogue and every element of the original story is here you know the the 2005 film includes the red weed includes the tripods leaves out the black smoke leaves out the thunder child um leaves out the parson uh, or you know the parson, the curate, the artilleryman. Um, you know the nineteen fifty three film leaves out quite a lot of things. Uh, you know the radio broadcast is almost completely different. This has everything. You know the the journalist and the the parson are trapped under a house, just as the narrator and the curate are in the novel the you know they're trapped under the house by the cylinder they see the handling machine they see the martians feeding you know the the re-encounter with the artilleryman the unstoppable nature of the the martian fighting machines 
the black smoke, the heat ray, the red weed, it's all here. You know, even the demise of the Thunderchild, the, you know, the, the triumphant moments that we have as well. You know, the, the, the journalist being responsible for the Parsons' death. It's all here and it's brilliant. And I don't think I can recommend it enough. So, yeah, if you are able to listen to the album, it's on Spotify, it's on YouTube. Um, find the live show um, at time of recording. It's currently available on Sky Arts on Now TV um, in the UK. I'm not sure, but I'm sure it'd probably be on some streaming service somewhere or probably available on DVD relatively cheaply. Um, so yeah, I recommend getting a hold of this and watching it because it is brilliant. Thank you, my dear listeners, for sticking with me um, as I discuss the War of the Worlds. Hopefully I've inspired you to check out one of these adaptations or even the original novel if you haven't already experienced them. Um, I've kind of gone from my least favourite towards my favourite of the adaptations as I've gone through this episode. Um, so obviously I would heartily recommend the musical adaptation or the original radio drama um, but either of the films are both solid watches in my experience, uh, in my opinion um, and the actual novel is you know, it's a, it's a classic for a reason upcoming episodes um, the next episode I'm planning to release is going to look at the age-old geek question of who is the best Batman. Um, so I'm going to be looking through all of the cinematic Batman um, from Adam West all the way up to Robert Pattinson if I can get a ticket for the new movie. And that will be releasing March 12th. Hopefully, all things going to plan. However, we know what they say about the best laid plans of mice and Batman. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a question I've been wanting to tackle for a while. I'm going to rewatch a couple of the old Batman films and try and decide which one I think has actually done the uh, the best in the role. There's a lot of discussion around Batman recently obviously because of the new film I'm going to preface by saying I'm not too excited about the new film um, I'm not entirely sure why it's been made and it looks very gloomy um, but I'll discuss that all more in the next episode um, after that a fortnight after that I am planning to do an episode on Thunderbirds, um, the show by Jerry Anderson and uh, TV21, uh, filmed in Super Mario Nation. Um, Thunderbirds is one of my favourites and has been for years, and 
is quite possibly Jerry Anderson's best work, and yeah, I, I, I would like to discuss it, um, because I think it's worth going back to and worth exploring, and yeah, so that's what I'm going to do. After that, um, in the start of April, um, it's my birthday, so I'm going to be taking a bit of time off. Um, so my next episode after that will be April 23rd. Um, so I'm putting that out now so that everyone knows that there is no episode that week. Um, but hopefully there's plenty of both my own podcast for you to listen to as well as everything I've recommended to you. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, look after yourself. Take care of your mental and physical health to the best of your ability. Ask for help if you need it. I wish you all the very best. And hopefully you'll all join me in the next episode. Thank you very much for listening to Gardo Goes Geek. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to recommend it to your friends. If you would like to get in touch with me to discuss a topic or an idea for a future episode, or to give feedback on the episode you just listened to or any of our others, then you can reach me at any of my social medias. I am at Gardo on Reddit, at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter, or at Gardo on Instagram. All of my social media links, as well as links for everywhere this podcast can be found, are contained on linktree slash gardo thank you for listening and until next time